Last week, we looked at the calling and mission of John the Baptist. In the words of the prophet Isaiah, he was the voice crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. He's the last and fulfillment, if you will, of the Old Testament prophets. And we saw there that he's a vital part of the Advent story. Believe it or not, John the Baptist is a vital part of the Advent story. Hopefully by now many of you have purchased your John the Baptist Christmas ornament. And today, in today's text, we're going to look at the longest piece of teaching. This is the, by far the longest piece of teaching from the lips of John that we have recorded in Scripture. Here we're going to learn that you not only need a John the Baptist Christmas ornament, you're going to need a John the Baptist Christmas axe. And that thing is going to have to be sunk into the root of your Christmas tree. And your Christmas tree is going to have to be ceremonially burned with fire when the season is over. That seems a little odd now. It'll make a little more sense, I hope, when we're finished. John's proclamation begins in verse 7. We're going to look at the sermon here under uh, three headings. First, the sermon itself, which is in uh, verses 7 through 9. And then the response, which is in verses 10 through 14. And then third, the Christ, 15 through 18, verses 15 through 18. So we have the, the sermon, John's sermon. And then we have the response of the people to John. And then we have the Christ. So first, the sermon. In verse 7, you can see in the text that, that uh, crowds came to be baptized by John. In some translations, it says multitudes flocked to him. Which is rather strange, given his demeanor and his appearance and the style and the whole tenor of his ministry. But remember... John's father, Zechariah, was a priest. And Zechariah receives this angelic visitation in the temple, describing God's calling. You remember Zechariah, he was made mute until John was born. And then when John the Baptist was born, his tongue was loosed and he prophesied. Here's what he said. Well, here's what the people, here's what Luke says after he was done prophesying. He says, Then fear came upon all who dwelt around them, and these sayings were discussed throughout the hill country of Judah, Judea. And all who heard kept them in their hearts, saying, What kind of child shall this be? And the hand of the Lord was with him. Now, that's about 30 years prior to our text, but people, were watching this child as he grew. There was some expectation in the whole region about what John would grow up to be and to do. And so we're told, when he appears, crowds flock out to him. Now, remember, these people are coming to John in the wilderness to be baptized, the text says, and it would have cost them some time and a great deal of inconvenience to do so. And so John, not really being skilled at hosting a revival, he addresses them in the middle of verse 7. And here, he violates every piece of pastoral etiquette. Every semblance of basic sensitivity 
He fails every preaching course in every seminary in the world. Apparently he missed the lecture on how to construct a winsome introduction. And so he opens, not with a pleasant or engaging story or a little bit of humor. Nope. He opens with, you brood of vipers. Now remember, these people are coming out to be baptized. This is a baptism service. You brood of vipers. That's an, that's an effective attention getter. Children of snakes. Who warned you, he says, to flee from the coming wrath? The deserts here were, are places where fire could be quite devastating. And John may be alluding here to what was commonly known, right? The, the way that desert creatures, and in particular snakes, would flee before the spreading of a desert fire. He says, that's what you're like. Snakes fleeing before the fire. So John opens with, wrath is indeed coming. And he knows some of these people are here for presenting themselves for baptism for any number of reasons. Same, same situation as people, why people go to church, why people do what they do. Maybe some of these people are just religious thrill seekers. Maybe they thought John's baptism was a get out of jail free card. Maybe they thought they could cut some kind of deal with God. Clearly, John's not impressed with the simple fact of their showing up. They may have even believed, some of them, that the day of the Lord would be a day of wrath, but they were sure that it would be a day of wrath for other people, for the Gentiles, not for them, the Jews. And John is going to disabuse them of this notion rather unceremoniously. In verse 8, he tells them, Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not begin, he says, to say to yourselves, do not even begin to say to yourself, we have Abraham for our father. For I tell you that out of these stones, God is able to raise up children to Abraham. He wants fruit. Sorrow, remorse, vague feelings, nor mere confession. None of these things are going to save us. John wants fruit, enacted, embodied repentance. Repentance is always embodied. And exactly what this fruit entails, we'll see in a minute. But notice what John does to stimulate us, to stimulate ancient Israel and thus us by analogy to repentance. Here's what he does. He attacks their tradition. First he calls them a brood of viper. Right? And then he attacks their tradition. Point two is I'm going to attack your tradition. And it's a divinely given tradition. But it's been distorted. And it's led to this smug religious and ethnic complacency. Tradition is tricky that way. We are Jews. We are Abraham's offspring. We have the promises of God. We're good, decent people. We're not like those Gentiles. Surely we're not going to face God's wrath. 
John says, don't even, don't even begin to do that. Now, there are many advantages the Jews had, to be sure, but we learn here that our pedigree, our history, our heritage, no matter how glorious, will not avail in the day of God's wrath. God is not impressed with your social, economic, and political achievements or heritage or genealogy. He's the immortal God who, as I said, sits above the laps of empires and worlds. He doesn't care about your credentials. God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. Even from us pagan, unclean Gentiles. God has raised up children to Abraham. And that means that our own heritage, our own theologies, no matter how correct or wonderful they are, can never substitute for bringing forth fruits of repentance. Nothing can substitute for concretely living the Christian life. So in verse 9, John says, The axe is already laid to the root of the trees. Thus the need for the John the Baptist Christmas axe. Christmas means the axe is already at the root of the tree. And in this context, that means the axe is at the root of our smug self-righteousness. Our pride in our glorious heritage, in our tradition, in our nation, in our bloodline, in our fatherland, in all the things that make us wonderful. That's where the axe goes, right there. And he says, every tree that doesn't bear good fruit will be thrown down, cut, cut down and thrown into the fire. The announcement of the advent of Jesus Christ, of his appearing, which is what John is announcing, is the announcement of a coming fire. It's a tree-chopping ministry, and it's already set in motion by John. Christmas is a time of great joy for those who repent. But we've wrapped the whole season in so much thick sentimentality that the harsh edges of the story, in fact, they're not even, you know, the edges, if you will, it's the harsh center of the story is rarely heard. John will have none of this. And it's a bracing tonic that we all need to hear, particularly at Christmas. I will come back to this question of the coming fire in a few minutes. But that's the sermon. And the second point, then, is the response. And when we get here are three different groups of people that come up and respond to John. The crowds, the tax collectors or the tax gatherers, and finally the soldiers. Um, they ask questions and John answers them in his characteristically blunt and practical style. So, you know, when you have people come up to you and say, one group after another after another, 
what shall we do? What shall we do? What shall we do? Then John, as a preacher, knows he's done his job. I mean, this is a sermon which got people's attention. Everyone responds to it. And so to the crowds, he says, he who has two tunics should share with him who has none, and the one who has food should do the same. This might seem kind of um, anticlimactic to us and unspiritual. A sort of uh, Christmas is for sharing message brought to you by John the Baptist. But of course, we should be cautious of attributing that sort of thing to John. This is not just a piece of nice uh, moral advice. These are, in this context, the simple tasks of discipleship. And Jesus will come along and say this sort of thing in an even more demanding way. This is what he means by bringing forth fruits of repentance. True fruits of repentance. Take your extra clothes and your extra food and find ways to give them to the poor. How's that for the gospel of Christmas? Everyone's got extra stuff. Just look in your closet. Take stuff, give it away. Thus you'll be prepared for the coming of the king. And so John is touching us where we live. This is what the gospel does. Your life does not consist in the abundance of your possessions. What you do to the least of these, you do to Jesus. This is repentance in action. You know, it's interesting. I don't think any evangelical preacher in the world would give the advice John gives here. I think they would have said something like, well, read your Bible more. Pray more. Go to church more. And you'll be ready for the King's Advent. All good things, to be sure. I'm for all of them, just to get that on the record. We ought not to neglect them in any way. But John is, is doing something here. He's trying to instruct us about the nature of true piety. He's trying to challenge your notion of true spirituality. To be spiritual, to be pious, is to love your neighbor in concrete, sacrificial ways. So John's telling us, be satisfied with less Give stuff away. It's just stuff. What are you going to do? Stare at it? It's just stuff. Get rid of it. So next, the tax collectors respond, and they present themselves for baptism. Notice that in verse 12. These people are presenting themselves to be baptized. They say to John, Teacher, what shall we do? And he says, Don't collect any more than you're required to. Under the, uh, the Roman system, people um, sort of like independent contractors would basically bid with the authorities for the right to collect taxes in a region from the people. So a group of people would pledge a certain amount to the governing authorities, and then they would go hire a crew of underlings. They'd go out and collect that amount of tax money and some additional money for their salary, for their profit, for their expenses. That's how taxes were collected. There's no IRS. Right? There's independent contractors who work with the Roman authorities, cut a deal with the Roman authorities. They say to the authorities, I'm going to get you this amount of money. And then they go out and collect the money, plus their, plus their pay and salary. And of course, this is a profession that was hated by all the Jews because they saw the tax collectors as agents 
of a Roman occupation. And the tax collector could easily be tempted to gouge the people and make a handsome profit. Again, there's no W-2 forms. There's a guy who shows up at your house and asks for money. And so John gives them the advice that they would not want to hear. Collect only the amount appointed. Meaning, collect the money you pledge to pay to the government and collect a reasonable wage. Don't use your authority to exploit the people. He doesn't tell them to abandon their profession, which is, I think, what many of his contemporary Jews would have wanted him to say to them. That's because John is not a social revolutionary advocating a tax revolt. It's not to say he loves taxes either, but he's a prophetic reformer. He realizes there's dirty jobs. Somebody has to do them. But he expects them to be done, and this is a dirty job. He expects them to be done in a spirit of repentance as disciples of a coming kingdom of peace. So behave ethically in the workplace is the point here. Don't cut corners. Don't cheat. Don't enrich yourself at the expense of others. And finally, the soldiers come forward. Either Roman soldiers or local troops who would have guarded the tax collectors. And they say, what should we do? And then John speaks to some of their unique temptations. Don't extort money. Don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. It's interesting, if military service were in and of itself wrong, as some in the tradition have held, it would be hard to see how John could give this advice, wouldn't it? I mean, it's not contrary to John's personality to say, abandon your profession. It's not like he's afraid to say that. But he doesn't say that. Right? Soldiers are to live in the fallen world as disciples of the coming Prince of Peace. They're not to intimidate or to extort or to falsely accuse. They cannot abuse their power either. So that's John's practical, concrete, ethical advice. I'm reminded of Chesterton who, who once said that the Christian life's not been tried and found wanting. It's been found difficult and left untried. John is calling us here not to leave the life of discipleship untried. And there's really no, there's no other worldly piety here, is there? These are the fruits of a new life. And we have to hear the forerunner if we're going to hear Christ and we have to hear him seriously, in earnest. And that brings me to the third point, the Christ. You can see this in verse 15 here. Verse 15, that the, the people were in great expectation. They're wondering, maybe John is the Messiah, the Christ. Christ means the anointed one or the Messiah. But John's a man, he knows his limits. He makes very clear that he's not the Messiah. I baptize you with water, he says, and one more powerful is going to come. The thongs of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. There's no comparison between John and the Lord Jesus Christ who comes after him. And John gets this. They're not on a sliding continuum of great prophets and teachers. 
The difference between them is fundamental. And, and you see in this John's extraordinary humility. In the ancient Near East, a disciple was expected to perform many menial tasks for his teacher. But the removal of the teacher's sandals was not one of them. A disciple did not have to do that for his master because it was considered too menial, even degrading, and it was to be left to slaves. Only slaves bent down and took the sandals off feet. And so John is saying, I am not worthy even to be a slave, much less a disciple of the one who comes after me. And the reason is this one will baptize you with the Spirit, the Holy Spirit in fire. John can preach a baptism of repentance. Christ can give the reality. As I said last week, John is best summed up by the finger. He points. Christ alone pours forth the Spirit and the holy fire which will either purify or destroy. Notice what John says in verse 17. He says, this one... This coming Christ already has his winnowing fork in his hand. Just like the axe is already sunk into the root of the tree, the the appearance of Jesus Christ in his public ministry is an appearance of one who already has the winnowing fork in his hand and he's ready to clear his threshing floor. The the fork was a tool used to throw grain in the air and the, the grain would fall back down and the wind would separate out the chaff. You could gather, gather up the, the grain, put it in the barn. The chaff could be gathered and burned. Here the text says the chaff will be burned with unquenchable fire. Now, as I said last week, these texts are right here in the middle of the Christmas lectionary, where they've been for hundreds and hundreds of years. It bears repeating, right? The advent of the Messiah, which we celebrate at Christmas, is a time of crisis. It's a time of judgment and decision. It's it's depicted here as an impending, sifting, fiery judgment. This is what I mean by saying we've excised out the whole theological meaning of Christmas often. I mean, it's a charming, harmless thing the way we celebrate it in many cases. Because there's no axes in the root of trees. There's no coming wrath. Christmas was the end for Israel. The appearance of this baby meant the burning and destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD because of their rejection. That is what John means. He's speaking to Jews, remember, when he says, look, the axe is in the root of the tree here. He's got the winnowing fork in his hand. He means the appearance of Jesus Christ is the end for Israel in her recalcitrance and in her unrepentance. She shall be burned with holy fire. And so will all who reject this appearance. C.S. Lewis once said, Christianity, if it's true, is infinitely important. If it's not true, it's not really any more important than anything else. He says, what it cannot be is moderately important. This child comes, and he is always decided for or against. There are no neutral people to him. 
There's either going to be the baptism in the Holy Spirit or there's going to be the experience of fire. Remember, Mary was told by Simeon that this child, now here we are right back at the Christmas story, right? The little baby Jesus, he was appointed for the rising and falling of many in Israel. He was to be, the, Luke says, a sign of contradiction, spoken against, revealing the thoughts and heart of the hearts of many. Right? Jesus himself tells us, look, I did not come to bring peace. I came to bring division. There are no Christmas carols about this as far as I know. He came to bring division. Right? There, there, this stuff doesn't sell. But this is not to miss a minor detail in the story. This is to miss the whole fundamental thrust. He comes to cut men off from their cherished loyalties and to call them into the kingdom. He comes, as he says, to cast fire on the earth. That's what John the Baptist says. And his desire, he said, is that the fire be kindled immediately. This is the Christ. And John is preparing you for him. He already has his fork and his sifting device in his hands. And he comes to divide to save the wheat through a saving baptism in the Spirit and to burn up the chaff in the fire. Remember the Holy Spirit fell on Pentecost and it was a baptism in the Spirit, but it also was in the form of tongues of fire. But it meant the end for Jerusalem. And so the advent of Christ, its central significance is this. It is the bringing forward of the coming great and dreadful day of judgment into history. That is what the incarnation of the Son of God is. It brings that judgment into history. It is the end of history. Someone was talking to me the other day and we were having a conversation about the fact that this is something that is simply not grasped by modern Christians. You can say it 10,000 times. They simply do not believe that they stand at the very end of history under that coming judgment because that judgment has already appeared. So we might be tempted to ask here, <laughs> more than tempted, I think, is this good news of great joy? Yes, the answer is yes. You can see that in verse 18. Look at verse 18. It says, and with many other words, John preached the good news to the people. And that word for good news there is the word for the gospel. John is preaching the gospel in this text. Now, he preaches it in a preparatory way, to be sure, but this is the gospel. Why is this the gospel? The go the, because the gospel is the good news of salvation, and salvation is always by fiery judgment. There is no salvation apart from fiery judgment. Everybody pays in blood, either your own or Jesus Christ. This is the gospel of the kingdom. The fire of judgment can fall upon Jesus Christ for your sake, or you can appear naked before the throne of God and bear the fire yourself. That's the gospel. Repent and believe it then. 
This is, this is why it's so urgent, this gospel. So you have that gospel. And you have all these injunctions. Do this, don't do that. But they're to be done in the power of the Spirit. By those baptized in the Spirit. They're not, they are simply what the gospel entails, John says. There's no getting around this. It would be nice if we could have a Christmas uh, message that fit into our preconceptions, that met all the sensitivities of the age, that catered to everybody's perspective. But the Christmas message is this. The world lies under judgment. If that's not true, then the Christmas message is worthless. And that the fire of that judgment is going to fall on the Son of God for the sake of His people. Flee so that the fire doesn't fall on you. That's Christmas. So this fiery sermonizing of John will will be good news if we live repentantly and bring forth fruits. Bring forth the fruits of true discipleship and concrete deeds. And we can do this because the one John pointed to has appeared. He's appeared, and he's borne the judgment that he brings on his own head for our sakes. And he's given us his Holy Spirit. And that Spirit is to purify us. It's a fire so that we be zealous for good deeds. This is why the ministry of John the Baptist is indeed tidings of comfort and joy. Amen.